What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. So each year, BNEF hosts a series of summits. In 2020, we had to turn our summits virtual, but they continued to tell important stories for each region. In Shanghai, the topics revolved around energy, industry, and transport. And in today's episode, we feature an interview from our Shanghai summit, which took place back in December 2020. We had the pleasure of hosting John Merton, COP26 envoy for the UK government, and he spoke about carbon neutrality and the race to net zero. Before we head into today's recording, a quick reminder that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we have a complete disclaimer at the end of the show. Also, to see other interviews from this summit and other BNF summits, head to about.bnef.com forward slash summit. John Merton was interviewed by Veronica Henze, who leads communications at BNEF. Let's hear Veronica with John Merton. John, welcome and thank you so much for joining our BNF Summit in Shanghai. It's a pleasure to host you. Thank you. It's great to be there. John, we've seen a number of countries make net zero commitments recently. Can you share a few thoughts on how the economics of a low carbon transition are changing? Well, as we look towards organizing COP26, we have a tailwind behind us that perhaps people organizing COP21 in Paris didn't have. And and that's to say that in the past, in order to encourage countries to reduce their emissions, we were having to persuade them to give up a little bit of that economic growth. But now, because of the changing economics of renewables uh, and zero emission vehicles and other low carbon technology, we're able to say not only that that trade off doesn't apply, uh, and you can see that by looking at the G7 growth figures over the last 30 years, where the UK has been the fastest growing economy and also the economy that has cut its emissions the fastest, not only does that old trade-off no longer apply, but actually the reverse is true. And that in order to grow your economy, you need to green your economy. The green economy is the fastest growing sector of the world economy, much faster than the brown economy. And so if you want to grow your economy, you have to increasingly direct it in that green direction. And markets point us in that direction. That's why Tesla is worth more than Toyota and Next Era Energy is worth more than Exxon. And China has obviously been one of those countries making a commitment recently. What do you expect the impact of China's 2060 commitment to be on the energy transition overall? The Chinese commitment is obviously very, very welcome and it's having a number of impacts. It's having a diplomatic impact. We saw that, you know, just in the six weeks after the Chinese announcement, we saw Japan, the world's third largest economy, make a commitment to net zero in 2050. And then weeks after that, we saw the Korean economy make a commitment to, to net zero by 2050. So it's having a diplomatic impact that we hope we can leverage through the world as we go forward next year. But it also will have a, a market impact, an economic impact, as you described. So one would imagine if you were in, an investor in coal mining right now, you might be feeling that your investment was much less certain uh, than it was before these announcements were made. And you might be considering that now would be the time to 
to move your investment out of coal mining, for example, and into some of the sectors that are likely to profit from the shift to the low carbon economy. And John, obviously, besides making this public statement, what would you expect or at least wish for the steps for China to take to actually meet its Paris goals? Setting an, a net zero target has been really welcome. And that's written into the Paris Agreement. All the countries that signed up to Paris signed up to the language in the Paris Agreement that, that talks about bringing a balance between anthropogenic emissions on the one hand and, and natural sinks on the other in the second half of the, the 21st century. So it's right that everyone is gradually signing up to these net zero goals more formally and putting a date on them. Through next year, we'll be encouraging all countries to, to come forward with net zero goals, and including particularly those industrialized economies that have, have yet to do so. But setting a, a long-term goal is one thing, but it's also really important to start working it back and work out what that means you need to do in policy terms uh, today, next week, next year, in the next five years, and so on. We set a legally binding net zero goal in the UK back in 2019, in the summer of 2019. And over the last 18 months, we've been working through very carefully, what does that mean? What do we have to do to achieve net zero? No one's ever done it before. And, you know, there, there are certain complex things that you have to work out that you're going to, to do, whether that's in terms of housing standards, because any house you build today is likely to still be around in, in 2050 or 2060, uh, or in vehicle standards, because any vehicle that's sold in 2035 could still be on the road by 2050 or, or in other areas of your economy. So um, we're looking forward to working with all the countries that are setting net zero targets to discuss our experiences and to work out how we get uh, to those, those, those targets in the longer term and what we need to do in the shorter term in order to put us on the right path. And John, you're engaged in climate diplomacy. And by all means, I'm curious to hear your quick take on what exactly that entails. But what are your team's goals ahead of COP next year? And what are you working towards and trying to achieve? COP26 will be the largest summit the UK has ever hosted. And it's a really important summit in the UNFCCC process. In Copenhagen, in Denmark in 2010, and then again in Paris in 2015, at these major conferences, the world was trying to find an agreement on climate change that all countries could sign up to. There was failure in Copenhagen and there was success in Paris. So our job in Glasgow is not to have negotiated a new treaty. Uh, the treaty was negotiated in, in Paris. The agreement was negotiated in Paris. And that had enormous strength because 197 countries signed up to, to adhere to it. Our goal, therefore, is not to, to negotiate a new treaty, but to show that the existing treaty can work. Paris's strength is its universality, but it's still unproven that the concept of voluntary action and voluntary targets, which is what NDCs, nationally determined contributions, are, can work and deliver what we need to achieve in terms of limiting temperature rise so that we can achieve our, our climate goals. So in Glasgow, we have to demonstrate to the world that the Paris Agreement can work and that this principle of voluntary action and ever-increasing ambition can work and that we can use it to deliver the goals of the Paris Agreement, which is to limit the temperature rise around the world to, to no more than two degrees and as close to 1.5 degrees C as possible. So to do that, We're encouraging all countries to set long-term strategies of the sort that China and Japan and Korea are now setting. We're encouraging all countries to come forward with revised and more ambitious nationally determined contributions. That's to say their, their plans for reducing emissions over the next 10 years to 2030, so that we're sending strong signals to investors uh, about the direction of our economies. And we're trying to 
support that by five campaigns that will bring together actors, not just national level governments, but actors in the corporate world and in, in civil society and, and, and at the local government level to bring them together to show that actually ambitious climate action is really possible. And it's not just something we're doing uh, for the sake of the planet, but it's something we're doing for the sake of our economies and our livelihoods. Uh, and those campaigns are around adaptation and resilience because climate change is already happening now. And we need to make sure that we're able to help those people who are the most vulnerable to climate change and experiencing the worst effects to uh, to adapt and become more resilient in the face of it. And we're working, for example, with the insurance sector in that regard as well. There are sort of financial elements to that. We're working on nature-based solutions to show that conserving your peatlands or your forests or your swamps uh, is really important in terms of tackling climate change and also provides other additional services to your economy, flood prevention and so on. We're working to speed the transition to renewable energy around the world. Uh, we know that the economic case for renewable energy is, is very strong. That's why two-thirds of the installed capacity in the world last year was solar and wind, two-thirds of the new installed capacity. But we want to accelerate that transition. And uh, the fourth campaign is about zero-emission vehicles. Again, we want to accelerate the transition, the uptake of zero-emission vehicle technology. Uh, and underpinning all those five, four other campaigns is a campaign around finance both to make available the finance to developing countries that was promised at Paris and again at Copenhagen, the $100 billion a year that developing countries promised, but also to make sure that uh, the impact of climate change is really considered in financial decision-making, so that whether you're a finance minister or a finance executive on the board of your company, you understand the impact of climate change upon your activities and you understand the impact of your activities uh, upon climate change. And hopefully those five campaigns will enable countries um, to be more ambitious, and also in the case of finance and the 100 billion a year, create the political conditions so that we can conclude successfully the negotiations on the remaining outstanding elements of the Paris rulebook. That's a very clearly fully packed agenda and the five different streams you've outlined. Does that mean that the, the outcomes we can expect to see in November next year Will they be more ambitious since basically we skipped a year of having come together or will they still be kind of matching the expectations that we would have had for 2020? I'm confident and optimistic that we can deliver more uh, ambitious outcomes in November 2021 than we would have otherwise been able to do. COVID-19 has obviously been a terrible thing and impacted hugely upon societies and economies around the world. And it's been right that our, our political leaders have been focused on that in 2020, and it was right to, to delay COP26. But there is a silver sort of lining to all of that in the sense of there's a lot of money being spent now on recovery around the world. And we need to make sure that that money is spent not on propping up old brown industries that commit the, the sort of contribute to the, the pollution and the climate change problem that we're experiencing around the world. But the, that new investment to get our economies going again after COVID-19 focuses on stimulating the green economy and accelerating our transition to a green economy. So I'm confident that we can do that around the world. We've seen the commitments from China and Japan and, and Korea in, in recent months. Uh, the delay of COP26 means that now we'll be hosting COP26 after the inauguration of President Biden, who's committed to making a net zero target for the United States of America, which means that also we'll be hosting uh, COP26 in the year when the UK holds the G7 presidency. And we can hope that the G7 summit uh, in the summer will be the first G7 summit where all the participating countries have got net zero goals of their own. 
And in a year when our Italian partners, our Italian co-hosts, are hosting the G20 presidency this year. So we can steer the G20 in a similar direction to supporting our COP26 goals. So I'm confident that by the time we get to the end of COP26, we'll be able to show the world that we're on an irreversible and accelerating transition to a low-carbon economy. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. And John, to what extent is your team directly involved in, in getting those companies to commit to net zero targets? So we work both directly with companies and also through the UN's high-level climate action champion, Nigel Topping. And we work very closely with companies to try and encourage them to, to take on ambitious new commitments uh, because companies are delivering climate uh, emissions reductions in the real world, but also they give confidence to governments that they can be more ambitious. Um, if you just look at the recent commitment made by the UK government to bring forward the phase out for the sale of sort of internal combustion engines um, from 2040 to 2030, a lot of that was drawn upon sort of enthusiasm in the industry to make the transition quickly. So industry can help government along. And I think We've passed the days when government was dragging industry along and saying, come on, you have to do this for the sake of the planet. And now, often in many areas, in many sectors, but not all sectors, it's industry dragging government along saying, come on, we need to go faster. We need you to help us set the regulatory framework that will enable the uptake of, of this new technology. It's a bit similar to what you said in terms of industry actually being ahead of government, what we've seen around climate disclosures, right? Just for instance, the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures was an industry-led initiative, and now we're seeing a lot of governments making those recommendations mandatory. I think that's a good example that kind of fits into, into that. It's a great example. And you saw our, our finance minister just a couple of weeks ago made it clear that by 2023, disclosure along TCFD lines would be mandatory for all UK-listed firms. And that means if you're a pension fund manager or an investment manager, you can actually have information that enables you to make informed decisions about climate risk within your portfolio. John, you just mentioned as well um, Boris Johnson's 10-point uh, plan for a green industrial revolution. In terms of the UK putting such a plan out there and hosting COP next year, as a host country for COP, what are the expectations? Are there further expectations for the UK to step up on climate action and can we potentially expect other major announcements coming out from the UK in that sense? I think there are. And I think I mentioned earlier on how the nature of COPs is changing. So there will still be negotiations in Glasgow and we will chair those as presidency. But the focus will not just be on negotiations, but it will also be on how we're encouraging countries to come forward with new and ambitious plans. So the role of the presidency whilst it used to be only a chair of the negotiations and, if you like, was an impartial referee, 
Now we also have to be a cheerleader for ambition. And we can only really realistically encourage other countries to take ambitious steps to tackle climate change if we're doing that ourselves at home. And so it's really important that as hosts, we are delivering ambitious plans for our own climate action. And you saw that with our Prime Minister's 10-point plan speech just a couple of weeks ago, where he committed us to 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, up from 10 now. That's, that'll be enough to power every home in the UK with offshore wind energy. And, and he framed it very much in the language of jobs uh, and in the language of a green industrial revolution, because he sees that actually this won't just be good for the climate, but it will be good for our economy and not just the economy generally, but also the prime minister's own leveling up agenda. So it's it's sort of win, win, win uh, in so many ways. He committed to ensuring that there would be five gigawatts a year of low carbon hydrogen production in 2030. And that sort of the whole hydrogen economy uh, is a green industrial revolution uh, waiting to happen. Uh, and he made numerous other commitments that affect sectors like house building, bringing forward the standards for, for new greener houses in the UK, and also most notably, which was really picked up on in the press, uh, the phase out of the sale of petrol and diesel engines by 2030, a whole decade earlier than we'd originally planned. And, and increasingly, the view is that actually, this is not a cost to be feared, but an opportunity to be embraced. And, and the analogy I use is, is mobile phones. And I've spent half my working career in Africa and in Kenya, for example, where I did my PhD. If you'd have said to people in 1995, in 20 years time, there'd be more phones than people in Kenya, everyone would have laughed and said, well, we could never afford that. That's never going to happen. I have to wait seven years for the state utility to bring a landline to my house to connect me to the telephones. And lo and behold, now, you know, you have more phones than people in Kenya because the technology made it in people's commercial interest to do it. And we're seeing that very much with the renewables and with zero emission vehicles. And the International Energy Agency just the other day said, solar power is the cheapest electricity we've ever had. And I was speaking to um, the Indian energy minister today, and he told me that in the latest deals they've had for, for renewable energy in India, they've brought down the cost to 2.7 US cents uh, per kilowatt hour. So it gives me a great challenge. I can go to other economies and saying, you're paying 9, 12 cents a kilowatt hour for your fossil fuel power. How will your energy intensive industries compete with those in India that are getting power for 2.7 cents? And that really makes people sit up and, and listen. And, you know, that change will start to happen very quickly, I suspect. John, I, I've actually meant to touch on your experience working in, in Africa. You've been the, the British ambassador to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You had numerous other roles in other African countries. Can you maybe share a little bit about your experience and impressions, you know, working in these countries, but also with a lens in terms of how are these developing nations approaching the energy transitions and what economics are at play over there? I'm personally really excited about the opportunities for low carbon transition in a lot of African economies, because in some of the economies, indeed, some of the ones with the, the, the infrastructure that is sort of least sort of well suited currently, for example, uh, electrical transmission, the, the opportunities offered by renewables are, are immense. So in my previous job, I was working in the DRC, as you mentioned. Now, the electricity transmission grid around the DRC is essentially is not in a good state of repair. And there are many outlying cities and towns that don't have access to the grid. But the great thing about renewables is that they're infinitely scalable. You can have one panel generating enough power for a household, or you can have a whole solar farm. And the economics you know, are very scalable. And so you can put now in place a mini grid in a town in, in northern DRC, for example, and you don't have to build out a national grid to that town. 
you can just install a grid in in that town and it and it generates there in place and so that that is sort of enhancing the economics of renewables because if you compared it to say putting a massive coal-fired power station in place centrally in Kinshasa and then building out a grid to connect towns to that the economics of renewables suddenly become very favorable and that is even right down to the rooftop level and we've seen fantastic companies like Mkopa and Bbox working in eastern and central Africa delivering household power right to people's doors on their roofs uh, and in combination with uh, telephone technology so that you pay a little sum every day to, to buy the solar panels and if you don't pay the sum the solar panels sort of stop working because they're controlled by a mobile phone so it's a kind of, there's some really exciting technology out there and that's important for the, the politics of the negotiations as well because Sometimes when a technology develops, it's actually more accessible in, in, in advanced industrialized economies. But all of the technology that I'm seeing in terms of renewable energy actually is, is very deployable in emerging markets. And hopefully we can use it just as we saw the mobile phone give millions and millions of African consumers access to telephony for the first time. Hopefully the deployment of renewable technology can give millions and millions of African consumers access to electricity for the first time as well. And that will be a really significant win, not just for climate action, but also for people's welfare and livelihoods in those countries. Yeah, it's really this idea of them being able to, to leapfrog, right, and, and jump ahead using cleaner technologies, basically. And John, how can the people listening in take concrete steps and drive climate action? If you're operating in a country where the government hasn't yet set a long-term target, encourage your host government to set a long-term emissions reduction target. We found that that has been really helpful in the UK because it creates a field which lowers the cost of capital for investors. If you know that there's going to be a market for lower carbon economy products in your country because they've set a net zero target, it reduces your cost of capital and it makes your business more successful in the low carbon sector. So encourage your governments to set ambitious targets because it will actually help um, drive your business. But also take on a, a target internally very interesting. Once a company takes on a target, it starts sort of mainstreaming the idea of climate action through the group. Uh, and that has really interesting effects. And if I've spoken to the, the sustainability CEOs of a number of, of, of major companies in the Asian region, and I spoke to one who, who remained nameless, but he said he had a 24% return on capital employed in his sustainability division within the company, uh, installing essentially energy efficiency innovations within the rest of the company. And that was the highest return on capital employed in the group. It's not sexy, uh, but it has a real impact on the bottom line as well as a really positive climate impact. That's great. John, looking ahead at longer term trends and themes that might become really important in the future, what are you looking at? Is it something around, you know, gender equality and how that links back to the climate transition? Is it something around biodiversity or social welfare? Or I'm, I'm curious to hear your, your, the bigger trends you, you're watching. So as we, we sort of highlighted earlier on, I'm, I'm an African development economist by, by training. And so I look at it sometimes from, from that lens. And I can see very much, in, particularly in emerging markets and some of the, the poorest markets, a lot of the technology we've been discussing uh, has some really positive gender impacts. So, for example, if you can install electric cook stoves in people's houses, people don't have to go and fetch firewood. And in many societies around the world, it's women who go and fetch the firewood or the biomass for, for, for fuel. And similarly, if you have electric lighting as a result of a rooftop solar panel in a poor village in Kenya or DRC or wherever, uh, that enables uh, more children to study after school, after school, after it's got dark. 
uh, and that can really enable uh, young girls to continue with their schooling and that in itself sort of is massive for for, for female empowerment in, in those markets so um I think to me there's no tension there are just sort of reinforcements between the the, the, the climate env- environment agenda on the one hand and also the sort of the, a lot of the gender issues that, that you're touching on on the other my very last question for you and we're very grateful for your time today is It's been a very turbulent year, to say the least. And in times of crises, what are the the leadership lessons you've learned and that you would like to share with our audience? Well, for me, this year has obviously been a a very unusual one, as I'm sure it has been for everyone experiencing um, COVID. But for me, what it's shown actually is that we can think we can afford to think big. The fact that we're doing this interview uh, by Zoom now is perfectly normal and has been for the last few months. But a year ago, we might have found that surprising. Uh, and I'd have been thinking I would do this interview on a trip to Shanghai uh, for the conference. Um, and so we can uh, we can see that governments around the world have really worked together to tackle the COVID-19 virus. And there's been, you see all the vaccines that are coming forward now and the result of international collaboration. So if governments of the world can work together to tackle COVID-19 so successfully, It gives me a lot of confidence. And if we can change all our behaviors so rapidly as we have with COVID-19 and working from home and so on is now normal, that gives me a lot of confidence that we can make the behavioral changes and have the international cooperation that's required to tackle the climate crisis successfully. And John, there's a lot on your plate for next year running up uh, up to COP and keep those net zero commitments coming in. All the best of luck and we'll be looking forward to hearing the outcomes of COP next year and hope that all goes well. Thank you. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording that expresses Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.